Okay. So I've set you up for what we're about to talk about. And the way I'll connect those two dots is this. Um, that's a Pixar film, Inside Out, right? Some of you may have seen another Pixar film by the name of Ratatouille. Anybody ever see that one? Right? Yeah. It's about the rat named Remy in France who is a culinary prodigy somehow, right? The, the rat knows how to cook food better than the humans do. And the person who plays Remy is a comedian, a stand-up comedian by the name of Patton Oswalt, who's experienced a lot of pain in his life in the last several years. His wife died suddenly about 2010. But in an article, an interview he gave um, a few years ago, he recommended a book that he felt like was the most important book anybody in leadership or in this world, especially in this country, could read at that time. And it was a book by a guy named Garrett Kaiser a book that's called The Enigma of Anger. Kaiser is an Episcopal priest, and he wrote a book thinking about anger. And what began that book was his own observation of his own anger. And in that book, at the introduction of the book, he notices three things about his anger. One, my anger has often seemed out of proportion, that is, too great or too little, but more often too great for the occasion that gave rise to it. Two, my anger has more often distressed those I love and who love me than it has affected those at whom I was angry. And three, my anger has not carried me far enough toward changing what legitimately enrages me. In fact, the anger often saps the conviction. Can you relate? Are you familiar with that phenomenon in your heart? Have you had moments in which your anger, maybe even this morning in getting people in a car to come to church? <laughs> uh, who does that, right? Maybe this morning the anger was out of proportion and actually accomplished less than what it sought to go after. It's almost like we need wisdom to think about something that is just so near and dear to our hearts like anger. We're almost done with listening to the book of Proverbs but we better not stop listening until we let it talk to us about our anger. And I think it's going to do a few things for us this morning as we listen to several texts about it. One, that there's a place for it. There's a place for your anger. Secondly, which you'll probably will have no argument with, there are a lot of problems with anger. But thirdly, we've got to talk about its purification. How shall our anger be purified? How shall goodness and anger remain as friends, if that's possible at all? There's a place for it. There are problems with it. And we've got to talk about the purification of it. So if you're able to stand, we're going to read from several passages from Proverbs about anger. Reading from the book of Proverbs, starting in chapter 14. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook an offense. A man of great wrath will pay the penalty, for if you deliver him, you'll only have to do it again. 
Do not make friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. Do not be a witness against your neighbor without cause. Do not deceive with your lips. Do not say, I'll do to him as he's done to me. I'll pay the man back for what he's done. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For then you will heap burning coals upon his head, and the Lord will reward you. For pressing milk produces curds. Pressing the nose produces blood. And pressing anger, it produces strife. This is the unambiguous word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. I know, you know, there are liabilities with anger. There is stuff that happens that you know it's a problem, but I don't want to talk about that first. I actually want to talk about the place for anger, and there is a place for it. Um, If you look really closely into those texts, what you hear them all speaking to is a warning, but a warning mostly about not being, not be, a warning against not being slow to anger, of being easily triggered to it, of, of being habitually angry, of, of letting it live near the surface of your heart all the time, or of, or of pressing anger, of indulging it, of, of almost suckling on it. That's, that's the warning, and in any one of those warnings, the The warning is not so much against anger in itself. The warning has to do with its expression, with its management, with its participation. And therefore, implicit within all those warnings about anger is this. There is a place for anger. Why? Because if you'll get down into the essence of what anger is, you'll see it's this. Yes, it's an emotion. Yes, it's when you're frustrated. Yes, it's when you're irritated. But why? It is the feeling that you have of irritation and frustration when something that you value is being threatened. That's why you're angry. Riley, dessert was of great value, and she felt like it was under threat, and she was out to defend it. But look, you watch enough Mutual of Omaha Wild Kingdom, eventually you're going to see the North Pole episode, and there's going to be a polar bear, and every once in a while you're going to see them close up on the polar bear's sneer, And you're going to wonder, why is the polar bear being aggressive? And then they're going to pan out, and you're going to see that beneath her feet are her two little cubs. She is being aggressive. She is being angry towards a predator that she thinks is out to threaten her cubs. She's out to defend what is of value to her. And we might look at that and think, yes, it's the animal kingdom. We are higher than that. We have evolved. We are better. We don't sneer like that. How dare, tut tut, little polar bear, You need to rein in your anger. Really? She's defending what she loves. And that's where anger can go. It is out, driven by love. Whether you are the mother of cubs, whether you are the mother of children, whether you are the uh, the teacher of students, sometimes you want to sneer in deference and in defense of the one you love. Now, yes, there are problems with anger, and we're going to get to that, all sorts of it, but that does not mean that you put a whole moratorium on anger. It doesn't mean that you rule anger out as some sort of invalid feeling. Because when you prohibit anger, unqualified, unequivocally, what you're doing, 
you've just lobotomized love. Anger is a proper expression of love. Love, if love has a place, then so does anger. Because that anger is doing what? It's confirming your love for that which you value. It's also compelling you to defend what you love. Anger is love made combustible at times. And therefore, it is necessary and proper. And that is why I had Miss Leiter read to you the passage from Mark chapter 3. Jesus is there on the Sabbath. He heals a man's hand who is withered. And how do they respond? Do they rejoice at that man's restoration? No, they're angry at Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. And what does it say of Jesus? He's angry. He's angry at their hardness of heart. He's angry at how distorted their understanding of God's interests are for humanity and the world that they would think that God would be upset that there would be restoration on the Sabbath. And he is angry. He is out to defend what is true and defend whom he loves. That's a proper anger. It's the same kind of anger you see in Jesus in John chapter 2 when he overturns the tables in the temple. Why? Because they have turned the temple into a mall. They have diluted what it is for. They have distorted its purpose. And it's why you hear Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 quote Psalm 37 when he says, look, be angry, but don't sin. He's not calling out anger in itself. He's just warning us of letting our anger get away and letting it off its leash. Anger has a place. There's not a moratorium on anger. It is right and meet at times properly to be angry. Just don't let it threaten what is good. There is a danger in anger, but there is also a tragedy in the complete absence of it also. It comes down to this. What are you out to defend when you're feeling angry? That's sort of the hinge upon which the whole conversation turns. What are you out to defend? Look, if, if Northern Ireland Unionists and the Republic of Ireland um, uh, nationalists can throw bombs at one another and say it's because of religion that they're doing so, when in fact it's really about identity and group identity and, and territory, then that's a self-deception on their part that led to violence. If that can happen on a wide-scale basis, I, I'm quite certain that you and I can deceive ourselves into thinking that we're angry for a good reason, when in fact we're angry for some other reason that's really selfish. You have to ask yourself, what are you out to defend in the moment that you're feeling angry? But what these early texts are out to tell us is this. There is too much in this world in need of being defended. And if you're not angry, you're not listening. And if you're not angry, you'll never be compelled to act in love for the defense of that which is worth of that defense. There's a place for anger. And that's the first thing these texts are trying to get a hold of us. You know that. And I know that. But now we've got to talk about the problems. Because as surely as there is a place for anger, there are also manifold problems with it too. And if you're not aware of where those can go, you're asking for it. And you might summarize the, the problems with anger and what you heard there in the very first verse of the passages from Proverbs 14. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. The long and the short of it is this. If you're wise, then you will know what anger is and it is for. But if you don't grasp that, you are courting disaster. Anger 
like other things that we've compared it to, is like fire. You understand its properties, it can be of great benefit. But if you don't understand its properties, you will get burned. Or you will burn others. There are all sorts of problems with it. Some of those problems boil down to what anger can sometimes reveal about you. And in that sense, I mean this. Anger can be awfully pretentious. Listen to what 1632 says again. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. He who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. In other words, we assume sometimes that anger is more potent than restraint. And yet anger tends to be that thing which was out to sort of put on a show. That it is somehow less implosive than forbearance. But look, um, sometimes you will feel compelled to show strength through anger, but real strength is found in restraint. When Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, you better understand what he means by meek. Meek is not timid. Meek is not tentative. Meek means strength restrained. It is the capacity to be unnerved by something and properly unnerved. But not to let that feeling of unnerved to so consume you that you act in a way beyond its worth. And often, this is the truth, anger talks big, but restraint really is big. And therefore, anger can be so full of pretense and pride that you have to be aware of its danger and its problem. If it's pretentious, it's also oftentimes counterproductive. And you heard that in Proverbs 15, 1 and 18. A soft answer turns away wrath. A harsh word stirs up anger. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife. But he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Here's the assumption. That if you will just be angry enough, that it will ensure a particular outcome you're seeking. If you raise your voice, if you raise your hand, if you raise your army, you will get the desired results. That's the assumption. More often than not, and too common in our experience, is that rather than it quell the problem, it only exacerbates it. It only provokes more anger. It only provokes more strife. Anger. Anger comes against us, and we're propelled to it, and then we express it. And what happens? It starts to bubble over again, and we're starting to feel it. And we encounter, if not provoke, more strife. It's pretentious. It's oftentimes counterproductive. But in sometimes it's contagious in a bad way. Not like the chicken pox that you need to get so that you can get over, but contagious more like malaria. It'll dry you out and threaten your life. And you heard that in chapter 22. Do not become friends with a man given to anger, nor go with the wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. For those of you who might ever date someone, I encourage you to listen to the song by your um, fellow uh, Ashevillian, David Wilcox, who in um, uh, a song talks about um, sitting down on a first date, and uh, the, the chorus goes, if the man is rude to the waiter, uh, lesson number one, run. <laughs> if somebody can be out of sorts and rude to someone that they've never met and be so peeved that they will act in a monstrous way on the fly, lesson number one, run. Like, you're done. You know enough. 
This text in chapter 22 is, is saying it's, it's the worrisome thing is more so that you're going to have to buckle up with somebody that you get involved with who might be an angry person. It is saying that you risk of becoming that person too. That anger has this capacity to beget more anger. And the more you're in the presence of it, the more you're compelled to act on it the same way. Because we think to survive that we have to fight fire with fire, that we have to meet anger with the same level of anger. And yet anger, this is warning, is an accelerant. It's an accelerant to latent anger. Some of us are more given to being angry without much assistance. But on balance, most of us who are angry and show our anger is because we've learned it. Because we've been in the presence of someone who appeared to be very effective in getting their way by showing forth an anger that was unbridled. It's pretentious, it's counterproductive, it's contagious, but finally it's one other thing that's a problem and that's it's enslaving. And you heard that in Proverbs 19. A man of great wrath will pay the penalty. If you deliver him, you're only going to have to do it again. Anger is sometimes, we think, a tool that we should deploy that is to our advantage, and we think that we may wield it unto our own ends and purposes. But in time, the more you indulge it, you're not the one wielding anger. Anger is the one wielding you. Why? Because let's all be honest with ourselves. When we indulge anger, it feels good a little bit. Um, there's a certain delicious thrill to it. Like that dopamine hit is real. And you like it. And you've just cultivated more of an opportunity for you to follow it more. It's to our loss that we indulge it. Because in time, it will master us. The more you partake of it, the more you thirst for it. Those are all the problems with anger. Anger can be righteous. That's what we said in the first point, to be sure. And if we think it never can be, it's because we don't understand what love is. But more often than not, the way you and I indulge anger is an evidence of what? A disordered heart. A heart that is in need of reconfiguration. A heart that is in need of reflection and repentance. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, well, if anger can be good, but it tends to work in bad ways, then how do we keep goodness and anger as friends? How can we be good and angry? It has to be purified. So how is it purified? Well, you've got to kind of see what it means for it to be purified. You know anger is purified, first of all, when, when it is slow to surface and it really doesn't live near the surface. It's not easily triggered. It is triggered only by love for the right things. That's, that's one evidence of a pure anger. When it is, it is not, you, are not, you do not have an itchy trigger finger when it comes to anger. And yet there are times for it when it's proper. Another evidence of it being pure is that it avoids mere revenge. You, you've heard this passage before in another sermon, but when it says in chapter 24, verses 28 and 29, do not bear false witness against your neighbor without censure. Do not deceive with your lips. Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he does. You've, you've heard that before, and the context in which that passage is uh, set is that of something like a courtroom. 
where how you speak to a neighbor who's mistreated you is the issue at hand. And in that sense, the way they've spoken to you and you're before the authorities, you in some ways have their destiny in your hands. And what you can do is let their anger for you lead you to mistreat them, to respond in kind. Anger in that way, though, has become distorted into a vengeance. And a pure anger, while it has plenty against someone who has mistreated you, a pure anger is one that does not get distorted into the same kind of anger and the same kind of expression that's been shown unto you. And that is because the clearest indicator of a pure anger is what you heard in 25, 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. And then you may hurt burning coals upon his head, and the Lord will reward you. The clearest indication of an anger that is pure in you is the radical channeling of anger into seeking the good, the welfare of an enemy. You can be incensed by what they did. You can be properly scandalized by how they've treated you. But if you can do them good, then something has become really beautiful about your anger. And we hear that and we think, do their good? That's nuts. They're asking for it. And aren't you enabling them to do more? Aren't you being weak? Brothers and sisters and welcome guests, it is the greatest strength to know that you can be genuinely at odds with someone, still think of them as an enemy in the proper sense of the word, but still be motivated toward well-being. That is an anger purified. Sounds great. Love to be that way. How's it happen? How does that demonstration of a pure anger ever come to roost in our hearts? Because what that reflects is one, a radically humble view of yourself, a radically respectful view of another, which then leads to a radical discipline of scrutinizing your anger in real time and in reflection. So how do you get that radically humble view of yourself? How do you get that radically respectful view of another? And how does that lead you into a radically committed way of scrutinizing your anger at all times, of taking stock of it? You have to see your anger in context. And like I said at the top of this worship service, you have to take your anger before the Lord you have to see your anger in the context of that. Of his gospel. Fleming Rutledge is an Anglican priest, and she said this about anger in her book on the crucifixion. If we are resistant to the idea of the wrath of God, we might pause to reflect the next time we are outraged about something, about our property values being threatened or our children's educational opportunities being limited or our tax breaks being eliminated. All of us are capable of anger about something. God's anger, however, is pure. It does not have the maintenance of privilege as its object, but goes out on behalf of those who have no privileges. The wrath of God is not an emotion that flares up from time to time as though God had temper tantrums. It is a way of describing his absolute enmity against all wrong and has come to set matters right. Is God 
ever angry. Yes, it's, but we have to speak of it carefully. Because his anger is pure. It is not like what you saw in the Pixar film. It is not like the anger that you and I show most of the time. It is a right anger. It is a true anger. And you know what God is doing at that cross? He is sneering at us because he is defending us against ourselves. At the cross, he has come to defend you against that which would kill you. At the cross, he has come to defend you against all the ways in which you would bring harm unto this world. And he has come to say, I will be your polar bear. I will sneer at the things that are inside of you that are killing you, but I will take the shot. I will die in your behalf. So whatever righteous or pure anger I might have at that which is killing you will be forever resolved. That's the gospel. In his love, he has come to defend us against ourselves that we might be his and his forever. And when you get that, when you see that God had to die in order to resolve the problem within us, then you will be humbled. You and I will be humbled. Humble to the extent that we will consider our anger in a new way. And when you see that if Jesus will die because he believed in the very dignity of us all and was not only had to go but was willing to die on our behalf that we might belong to God again, then doesn't that dignity that he showed us mean that we must think of others with the same dignity that he thought of us? The cross humbles us. It humbles our view of ourselves but it radically transforms the kind of respect we might have for one another, even if they are our enemy. When you were yet enemies, Christ died for you. Paul says it in Romans chapter 5. When you look at the cross, you are humbled in yourself. You become more respectful of another. But finally, you take stock of your anger in real time. You begin to scrutinize what's going on. And though I may sound like a broken record here, you have to understand that most of our anger is built on one of two things, pride or fear. And if you were here last week, you know that a lot of times our pride is built on our fear. Our pride says to us, I deserve to be treated as well as God is, and therefore I will throw my weight around because I think I am him. You're not. And you need to take stock of your anger in the shadow of the cross. But some of us are just afraid. So afraid that we're failing. How many of us have been angry at somebody else because we hate ourselves? Because we think we've failed? Because we think we've disappointed somebody, if not the Lord himself? And in the midst of that internal little strife, the only way we can imagine to dissipate it is to be angry at somebody else. The cross invites us to take stock of ourselves. To take stock of our pride and our fear. And that means we have to do three things. At a moment's notice, in the midst of our anger, we have to ask ourselves, what am I out to defend? Where is this anger headed? For what purpose does it serve? You have to ask yourself that question. The cross is inviting you to that discipline. 
And even as you ask yourself that question, you then have to take it up with the Lord in prayer. Because I dare say, the more that the cross comes to be at the center of your existence, when you come to ask the Lord, why am I angry? You're going to hear at least one of two things, so to speak, not audibly, but it'll be like this. I love you, but who do you think you are? If you're prideful, the Lord will say unto you in so many words, I love you, but, but who do you think you are? And if you're afraid, he will say to you, I love you, but why are you so afraid? My love is real and steadfast. Your sin is as far as the east is from the west. Why are you so afraid? When you ask that question and take him to prayer, there's one other thing you can do. You come to this table. Because at this table, you see, most poignantly, and as clearly as could ever be, God's anger on display. Why would his son go to his death? Because God was angry at that which was killing this world and ourselves. And in his attempt to defend us from ourselves, he sends his son to the cross, and his son goes willingly. Here you see it displayed. Here you see it resolved. Because on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus takes bread. And after he blessed it, he says, this is my body. It's broken for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. And after supper, he blessed it. And he said, this is my blood in the covenant. Drink this as often as you will in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Christ is our Passover lamb and he was slain that we might know that any anger that God would have for us because of our sin has been resolved in his son. In Jesus we have found his welcome and at this table we see it again and by it we might actually have our angers purified and therefore these are gifts Gifts for the people of God. Hallelujah. This table is for sinners. This table is for sinners who struggle with anger. This table is for sinners who struggle with anger, who believe that in Jesus, God's love was made manifest and our sin is forgiven and we might know his welcome even in the moments at which we fail at restraining our own anger. This table if that defines you, is for you. If you do not yet trust him in that way, I encourage you, let the plate pass you and reflect on what you heard and consider afresh the invitation to hear him, to trust him, to believe that his love is real and that God's anger has been fully satisfied in the blood of his son. If the servers will please come forward We'll send this out to you all. If you would hold your elements until the end, we'll all partake of them together.